Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 8th of February, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're del delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. We just got there, I think. I think we did. Uh, right. Well, we're going to get started uh, with this BBC article. Why are care home residents still dying with COVID? This is what the BBC's uh, asking. And of course, they're not giving any answers. But what they do do uh, is uh, provide some statistics in the form of a graph. Here it is. Uh, this is care home deaths in Scotland's second wave of COVID-19. Uh, and they've quite, uh, well, they've put the dotted line on there, which shows when the vaccination programme for care homes began. Brian, this uh, looks quite similar to the England and Wales uh, situation that we've already highlighted on this programme, if you remember this graph. Uh, showing also the dotted red line there showing when the first va first vaccines were delivered. That was a few days before they started appearing in care homes specifically. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, the pink line is the seven day rolling average. And you can see that the rolling average is uh, quite a bit steeper uh, post the beginning of the vaccination program uh, as to prior. So what's going on? Uh, well, David uh, Scott has asked this question on Twitter and uh, people are, uh, in fact, asking Nicola Sturgeon uh, to respond to your original question, David. Yes, no response yet. So Nicola Sturgeon was, was uh, tweeting out a celebration that 48,165 vaccinations in Scotland yesterday, a record high, 99% exclamation mark of older care home residents now vaccinated with the first dose. So she's celebrating. My question was, why has the death rate gone up since the vaccination programme started? Uh, and, um, in and in fact, got, this, this graph up. that you provided actually shows it quite more starkly. Yes, I mean, gone up's putting it mildly. This is from the, this graph's from the National Records of Scotland. And what this shows is there was an abrupt increase. And uh, in, if you look solely at uh, the older, the 85 plus age group, um, it doubled. The, the, the death rate doubled from around 100 a week to around 200 a week. Uh, just after the vaccinations were introduced. And uh, I think we should be told why. Uh, this is a very good point. Now, of course, uh, correlation doesn't mean causation. We've got to say that. But nonetheless, the correlation continues to appear in the mainstream press. Here's the BBC again. Ten people dead after COVID outbreak in five care homes. So another care home. Uh, and this uh, isn't just uh, in the UK. So this is uh, from a couple of weeks ago. All Toronto long-term care home residents and staff have had their first dose of COVID-19, says CTV News. Uh, and then not long afterwards, we got this type of report from uh, Canada saying 66 residents have died uh, at uh, long-term care homes. So the same types of uh, headlines appearing in other countries as well. But Brian, coming back to the UK then, we've got Bristol Live and inside the care home in Bristol where residents were vaccinated well before COVID-19 outbreak. Yes, um, telling, uh, telling headline there, Mike, but I picked on this particular story because there is quite a story in this article. So let's just pull it apart a bit. So the headline as it stands from Bristol Live, then this is one of the key statements. Managers and staff at a Bristol care home have described how they did everything they could to keep coronavirus out only for it to arrive just two weeks ago. Their valiant efforts to keep the virus at bay for 11 months until a sudden outbreak in the home in the third week of January after all the residents have been vaccinated. So let's uh, just look at a little bit of detail here. This is one of the key parts of the articles where there's a graph and they're talking about what was described as the Brislington spike, the third highest case rate in the country on the 1st of February 2021. And this caused a huge furore in this uh, particular area um, where they were, uh, if you can see in the little inset graph, it's, it's a little bit difficult, but there's, there's a, a blue line transferring into a red line on your right and they're right at the top of that. So the spike was um, disaster and uh, suffering everywhere. So this was part of the quote. In the week up to January the 26th, the government reported that the number of new cases in Brislington had jumped from 26 to 74 in the space of a week. So this was all the hype about how they were in a really, how they were in a really uh, bad situation, and these cases were just uh, leaping off the paper. 
so we get a bit more here give you another quote bristol live asked british bristol city council and its public health team for more information about the reasons for the spike a week later no response and questions to the director of public health remain unanswered so the government starts screaming that there's a major increase in outbreaks in this area this this ramps up the fear in the local area but when the journalists from bristol live asked the key question what's the reason for this what happens no no response so take in a little bit more on Wednesday however in an apparent bid to reassure local residents Brislington local councillors announced publicly on the area's community social media pages that the outbreak was attributable to a couple of care homes in the area but the only care home in the area is actually Arbor Walk which the paper correctly identified so what we see here is the councillors the local councillors attempting to push the blame for the outbreak onto the single care home in the area so what we've got is a complete story being spun not by the newspaper the newspapers is reporting the facts correctly but there is a, a story being spun about covid so in jumps joss uh, clark who's the lib dem councillor for brislington but she's also the mayor for bristol uh, she's quoted in this article as many of you may have seen in the media that we have a spike in numbers of cases in Brislington West I have been in contact with the director of public health today and I'm going to have a briefing tomorrow at, at a councillor briefing this evening I was told that the spike in cases has been identified and it is associated with a couple of care homes in the in the area well of course this was instantly false because the paper says there's only one care home but now this terrible spike which is frightening all of the community is pinned on to this single care home i will be asking for information about what measures the care homes will be taking to ensure the safety of the residents and staff and how they're working with the people who are currently infected what will be done to vaccinate the residents to ensure their safety in the future but they've already been vaccinated but they've already been vaccinated but the paper says it couldn't find out exactly when the vaccinations had taken place but they had been vaccinated i'm sure we will all wish those people who are suffering at the moment a steady and safe recovery and that their families and friends will be able to continue to have contact with their loved ones now this is what uh, the nursing home or the care home replied and i've got a lot of sympathy with the uh, uh, the team because they were really having to fight their corner they say not all that increase can be attributed um, can be attributed to the outbreak at arbor walk and the spread in the community outside the enclosed walls is also a factor throughout the pandemic the home remained covid19 free until two weeks ago in order to prevent any outbreak and to keep our residents safe all our staff undertook robust infection prevention control training which was continuously reinforced through auditing spot checks and refresher training so there we have there is a team of care workers doing their very best to protect the patients and they're being successful then what happens all of our residents in Arbor Walk were vaccinated with their first dose well before the outbreak occurred and the lady goes on to say despite the new strain of COVID-19 being 70% more infectious than its predecessor our infection control protocols mean that we have contained the virus to only one of our wings in Arbor Walk now I asked you about that 70% figure uh, Mike where would this lady have got this very precise 70% figure and uh, you pointed me to uh, Dr Eric Voltz from uh, Imperial College but actually he was pointing to a spread of uh, of uh, probabilities yes on he, that was. Infection. he was uh, and so it, it's a spread of probabilities but the 70 percent figure was then taken from eric volts used by uh, boris johnson and so then it became fact after that yeah so now we can see how um uncertain statistics uh, arising at imperial college or indeed the government or public health england suddenly become precise facts when they've spread through to the care homes themselves well the article also reported Pfizer and AstraZeneca it said the makers of both Pfizer and Oxford Zen 
AstraZeneca vaccines say their jabs take a few weeks to build up immunity and that that may be longer for older pe people. So the most vulnerable people, Mike, uh, you get a jab that puts you at risk, but then you're at additional risk because your immune um, system is suppressed and that might go on for a longer time because you're elderly anyway. But the, but uh, this care home, according to the uh, the owner or the person who was quoted by the newspaper, hasn't had any infections uh, in the entire period until the vaccines. Until the vaccines, precisely. Right. Precisely. Now, we want to say that uh, we've been contacted by another whistleblower who is specifically talking about what's been happening in care homes. Um, we're going to play this clip out now and we're also going to do more on the full clip um, after the after the news itself. But uh, let's hear what this whistleblower had to say. Uh, contacted me and given me some really interesting information about uh, what you're seeing in the care system with regard to uh, vaccinations for COVID-19. Um, what, what are you able to tell us? Well, my experience has been over this uh, this past year or so that the uh, social care system has responded incredibly vigorously to all of the regulations and guidance that have come from the government. People have been fully on board with it, um, even to the point of being rather zealous about it. Um, I've been haven't been part of that culture and felt that it's not been easy to express any questions about it. Um, probably this is the same in many other areas, but the reason why I'm saying that is because um, on the whole, for those who are in management positions in, in social care, there's a very strong um, pro-vaccine um, and pro-government narrative uh, agenda. So what I've been coming across uh, in the last um, you know, a few weeks in particular, has, I think it needs to be spoken about. Okay, so um, vaccines have, um, have now come in, in in some quantity into the care home system. What, what is, what's been the result of the, the vaccination policy? Well, from the uh, reports that I'm seeing from my colleagues, um, that the vac vaccines are very often accompanied by outbreaks. So I've seen, you know, quite a few colleagues reporting that they've uh, that they've been free from any illness over 12 months and then the vaccines come in and then an outbreak results and these as i say are people who are um were very enthusiastically banging the drum for the vaccines uh, a few weeks ago congratulating each other on how many staff they've got on board and now there's a kind of very different story emerging Right. And are you able to say, uh, to share with us where you're actually seeing that information? For example, um, on um, groups for registered managers, so um, CQC registered managers, who it's mediated by uh, the Care Quality Commission, uh, registered managers will share with one another in a kind of professional forum. Um, and just recently began seeing posts where they talk about um, um, how they're having to deal with outbreaks now, having previously been free from uh, them, and um, many, many, you know, when one person will comment, many others will say, "Well, it's the same here. I've experienced the same thing." Uh, for some of them, it's um, you know, a huge three quarters of the workforce suddenly becoming positive, which is extraordinary. Um, and residents being um, being affected as well. So, so the the the, the background is that um, care homes have run a very careful, protective policy for for their residents, and that's that's worked very well. So, there's been a low. Um, correct me if I've got this wrong, but there's there has been a um, low incidence of of COVID. And then the vaccine's coming in and then something's changing. Is is that what you're describing? Yes, that is the, the picture. Um, of course, it's, it's, you know, different, looking at different provisions. These are maybe care homes, they may be day settings, they may be uh, settings for uh, vulnerable people. 
and um, some of the, you know, some of the, obviously the care homes where elderly residents will have most likely been affected in some way throughout. Um, but now that the vaccine rollout is moving across the whole generality of provision for people in need of social care, we're seeing settings which previously have been managing fine are reporting these very dramatic uh, increases in cases, um, either cases or actual outbreaks. Do we actually know which of the vaccines has been administered? Is there a difference um, resulting from which particular vaccine has been used? Uh, well, that's not been reported to me. I expect one could follow that up. But um, the one which I've heard most doubts about is the uh, Moderna Pfizer. I mean, I think I think uh, it probably needs to be clarified. Carolyn's been doing very well in this particular uh, outbreak this winter. Uh, obviously, yes. uh, back in March and April, they weren't doing so well because they weren't given the support that they need needed in order to do that there. So again, this is really the second time that the care home managers have been uh, is betrayed. Too strong a word. No, I don't think it it is because um, because this is where we can be fully supportive of people in the care sector. Most of them, the overwhelming number, are desperately trying to do their best to protect the very vulnerable elderly people that they've 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 got, and uh, they've been successful in this time round. The vaccines have come in, and as you're hearing, something extraordinary has happened. Now the government should be investigating what has happened. The local authority health teams, Public Health England, should be investigating what is happening, but they're not. They're simply pumping more and more vaccines in. So, uh, so well, just before you move on, that was yeah. a five-minute clip. Brian, there's actually 15 minutes in total, yes. and we're going to put that out later on this afternoon. Yes, we will, and I'm going to encourage people to actually listen to the full disclosure. Uh, people are taking huge risks personally in order to get this information out. We are... Uh, delighted that people have the confidence to come to the UK column to get this information out. But as you will hear in the full clip, the risks to anybody daring to challenge the government's policy is extremely great. Now, let's put on screen just some of the comments. These are uh, qualified people talking through on social media what's been happening. And these are people talking to each other from across the country. Uh, we've got to be heavily protective of who these people are, uh, but the conversations are real and you will see how these pieces fit together. So let's have a look. So the start off here is today's a very sad day for us all. One year in and we've had our first outbreak. Residents have had their first vaccinations. So we are hopeful that this will all be OK. Bless you. Uh, you've done so well at this time, so sorry. This is because there's some reports coming in. We have exactly the same, no COVID for nearly 12 months. Vaccines on the 14th of January, one week later, an outbreak. We have had exactly uh, the same, nothing for 12 months. Uh, vaccinations, 23rd outbreak a week later. Um, thanks, one of them's my own mum. We've had the same thing too, COVID free all this time, vaccinations on the 15th of January, outbreak six days later. Such bad luck, but comforting to know we're not the only ones. So sorry to hear that. If we can do anything to help, let me know. Uh, hugs, big hugs if you need any support. These are good people talking to each other. Exactly the same thing happened to us too. Snap. Vaccines two weeks ago, then outbreak. Hopefully uh, we got through it now. Good luck all. Hi, I'm really sorry to hear that. I was in the same situation too. Three quarters of my workforce tested positive and most of my residents were tested positive. It was a difficult situation. We just came out from the outbreak. I know you will overcome. I feel your pain. I was dealing with the same nightmare yesterday. No COVID all this time. Vaccine given and a few weeks later an outbreak. Honestly, I cried and felt that despite everything we do, it's in our home. Same. Uh, we have had the same. We're just coming through it now. 
and you will take one day at a time we can only do our best let me know if I can help in any way and this is the final uh, comment in the sequence I have not created this comment it is the final comment in this sequence we've had the same nothing for 12 months vaccines and then an outbreak a week later I see a pattern emerging it's bizarre um, Mike what's your reaction to that well, it's, it's pretty clear there is a pattern emerging, but yeah. we've seen that pattern also in the, in the mainstream media headlines. Uh, no questions from the mainstream media about it, as usual, David. Uh, but the headlines are clear from right across the world. In fact, uh, the vaccine goes in and there's an outbreak commonly afterwards, uh, and that results in deaths. And we should say that uh, if, if, you know, I've been putting every week up, or most weeks I've been putting up not only excess mortality figures, but also the place of that excess mortality. And up until January, up until the beginning of January, the place of that excess mortality has been hospitals and private homes, people's homes, not care homes, people's homes. And it was only in the third week of January or so that we started seeing excess mortality coming out in uh, care homes. Again, we've got to say, David, correlation doesn't equal causation but these coincidences are building up to a degree that they really can't be ignored they can't be ignored I mean there's a point at which correlation doesn't equal causation has to be suspended and if we're observing a pattern we have to respond to what we see it's not it's not real it's not real you know deep science where there's a, a, a full explanation as to what's happening but if you're seeing the same pattern over and over, that there must be a response to it. There must be at least a provisional finding. There must be some sort of thought going on. We've seen it in Gibraltar, and the whole island's affected. We've we've seen it from America. Last week we had the uh, the the, the uh, certified nursing assistant from America talking about exactly the same thing with exactly the same vaccine. Um, there's no way the government doesn't know. Uh, all the data that's being collected, they must know. Why is Matt Hancock not talking about this? Why is Boris Johnson not talking about this? It, it, it's, it's a dereliction of duty just to say nothing and let the vaccine rollout continue with this evidence piling up. Yeah. And uh, I'll just end that particular little segment again by saying that people taking uh, risks they're doing the right thing now because they are speaking out they're saying what they can see going on uh, but of course people have got their fam their own families to protect and uh, they're in a very difficult situation as you will hear in the full interview with that particular whistleblower now I just want to emphasize that of course in the background the BBC is simply pushing out the propaganda to get elderly people in particular vaccinated so here's the headline COVID when will I get the vaccine uh, and we've got uh, glowing statistics showing how successfully uh, immensely vulnerable elderly people are now being targeted with this unproven uh, vaccine regime uh, the BBC of course absolutely loves it uh, but this caught my eye do the vaccines work against new variants scientists are confident the vaccines will offer good protection against the new variants although perhaps not quite as much as they did against the original form of the virus so that's a good woolly statement um, but not to worry because uh, they're going to say uh, they say if new versions of the vaccines are needed developers say it's relatively easy to tweak the current recipe recipes recipe. and we're tweaking them are two doses needed all the vaccines all the vaccines have been shown to be safe and effective in trials and highly effective at preventing serious illness and death how can that be we got no statistics on it Mike no statistics and if that's not enough now they're absolutely going for the children so here's the daily mirror horror of healthy children left paralyzed and in pain for months with long covid a study from ons found 15 percent of 12 to 16 year olds and 13 percent of those aged 2 to 11 still have symptoms five weeks after a positive covid test experts want a vaccine program for kids and a new measure in schools when pupils return in march in england and after half term in Scotland and Wales 
almost 500,000 UK children are known to have had COVID, suggesting around 74,000 have had long COVID. Well, that's, uh, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to call that as nonsense and fake news. I, I'm, I would say that is, those are statistics that need significant uh, investigation. Uh, and uh, so, well, maybe I'm just uh, being overly cynical there, but uh, uh, I think we need to look at that in a bit more depth. I absolutely agree, Mike. And uh, if 74,000 have had long COVID, uh, what are they trying to say? That that's 74,000 children seriously ill? If that is true, where is the data and reports on these 74,000 children? Yes. Now, a second ago, you said no data. Well, in fact, we do have data now, Brian. You're going to be very impressed with this data because, of course, the, the yellow card system is what the MHRA uses uh, to gather statistics on adverse reactions. Uh, on uh, on these vaccines, uh, among other drugs. Uh, but up until now, and in fact, up until Friday, uh, there were no stats, as you say, available. Uh, but the stats uh, were published on Friday. Here's the uh, government uh, page, the MHRA page on the government website, coronavirus vaccine summary, summary of yellow card reporting. Um, now, before we look at the uh, actual report, uh, let's uh, just read this interpretation guide that the MHR published and released via Freedom of Information uh, at some point. Uh, and uh, the key statement is this, uh, to the right of each reaction lists the total number of reports received for a particular reaction and the number of reports that where there was a fatal outcome by both single constituent and multi-constituent formulations, totals of the data displayed in the total unique reports columns. Okay, so uh, what they're saying is that you're going to see, uh, well, let's just put one on screen from uh, from this, this is the COVID-19 mRNA Pfizer BioNTech vaccine analysis. Uh, it was run on the 31st of January, 2021. Uh, and uh, this is for uh, from the 9th of December, 2020 until the 24th of January, 2021. Um, and you can see there that you've got the reaction on the left, you've got a column for total, and you've got a column for the number of those reactions that ended up with a fatality. Yeah. Okay, so uh, we're looking here at uh, heart uh, conditions that are caused by the vaccine or at least uh, an immediate response to the vaccine uh, and people had these types of, uh, of problems. So ventricular arrhythmias and cardiac arrest. Well, there were seven deaths as a result of that. Uh, arrhythmia sorry, supraventricular. Uh, well, there were no deaths from that, but uh, atrial fibrillation, there was a death from that. Uh, let's go on down through some of the other lists. I'm not going to show all of them. Uh, but you can see that there are uh, coronary artery disorders. Uh, we've got uh, no, uh, nausea, vomiting. Uh, we've got two deaths from vomiting. Um, Non-site specific gastrointestinal hemorrhages. We've got two deaths, deaths from that. Uh, coronavirus infection. So they're, they are acknowledging that uh, following uh, the vaccination, people ended up with uh, coronavirus infe infections. That's what they're saying. Uh, and they were saying that there were uh, 217 COVID-19 uh, uh, adverse reactions and 10 people died as a result of that. Uh, they were saying that there were two cases of COVID-19 pneumonia and one person died as a result of that. Uh, and so we go on through the list, lower respiratory tract, diabetes, uh, central nervous system, hemorrhages, uh, and so on, uh, deaths from all these. Uh, and so at the very bottom, there are actually many more categories in this. At the very bottom of this, it says that the total reactions for the drug, 49,472, and the total uh, number of fatalities was 107. So that is what they're claiming. However, there is one section that I haven't shown you that, and it's this one. Uh, this is for death and sudden death. Uh, and this is quite incredible because uh, they say that there was one clinical death uh, reported, and that resulted in one fatality. And they're saying that there were seven sudden deaths reported, and that resulted in seven fatalities. But they're saying that there were 59 deaths reported, and that only resulted in 53 fatalities. Um, so, David, uh, maybe at this point you could explain this for me, please. No idea, Mike. No idea at all. Um, okay. The, 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 it, it, the figures I got from the OpenVAERS database, uh, this would be on, on COVID vaccines uh, more generally. Uh, was 329 deaths. Okay, well, look, let's let's just focus on this for a second. Now, you might say, okay, uh, what we've got here is 
human error. It's a, it's a, it's a, uh, a spreadsheet. Somebody's typed the wrong number in, uh, and that's quite reasonable. That would be true, except for this. If you remember back in November, the MHRA urgently sought an artificial intelligence software tool to process the expected high volume of COVID-19 vaccine adverse drug reactions and ensure that no details, no details from the ADR's reaction text are missed. This is from November last year. Uh, for reasons of extreme urgency under Regulation 32.2c, uh, related to the release of a COVID-19 vaccine, MHRA have accelerated the sourcing and implementation of a vaccine-specific AI tool. And they said that it was, they justified this not going through the normal procurement procedure by saying it was strictly necessary. It is not possible to retrofit the MHRA's legacy systems to handle the volume of ADRs that will be generated by a COVID-19 vaccine. Therefore, if the MHRA does not implement the AI tool, it will be unable to process the ADRs effectively. Uh, and so um, I'm going to say uh, they've spent whatever number of million pounds it was, I can't remember off the top of my head exactly. They've spent this money on their AI tool. Uh, I would have assumed that their AI tool would have automatically reported um, exactly uh, what the outcomes of the various adverse reactions are. Um, that this therefore could not be human error. Uh, it's either an error or their si of their systems or uh, their systems perhaps have reported something that humans didn't like very much and there's been some kind of human interjection afterwards. I would like to know the answer, uh, but it seems to me, David, that if you're putting millions of pounds into an AI system to track this stuff and therefore generate reports, uh, that you would have expected no errors in it. Well, that would seem reasonable, and having having simple numbers like that um, add up would, would be uh, an absolute minimum, I would have thought. Let's move on. I just want to add a bit to that. Supposing you have a multi-million pound AI system crunching data, when it produces its first report, inevitably that report will go to the desk of an individual, a highly qualified individual, we could say Mr Chris Whitty, for example, who would look at the paper report in order to check that uh, using his normal brain and cognitive process, if he's still got one, that the AI system was at least producing sensible material. So possibly this document has not been checked by a human being at all. It's been pushed out without any form of medical expertise, expert casting their eye over it. And that means that any and all the data that's being produced by the government via AI systems could be completely fallacious. We've no way of no knowing. No way of knowing, indeed. So where does that take us? Uh, well, I think we should just put these statistics on the screen. Sent through to me by a retired GP. So we're going to say thank you very much for this. Mike, you've covered a lot of this in graphs, but it's ONS putting out deaths. Uh, on an annual basis in a very simple form. So we start off with 1990 and we're looking at 564,846 deaths. And if we come to 2020, when we're suffering from huge uh, problems with COVID, uh, we're looking at 561, uh, sorry, 561,529. Or if we look at the year 2019 deaths, 530,841. What I'm trying to say is if you look through the years from 1990 to 2020, there is no major change in the annual death statistics, and yet the government would have us believe we're in a pandemic. Um, David, you mentioned the, the VAERS uh, statistics. Just uh, tell everybody what OpenVAERS is. Yeah, this is, this is a, an access um, site giving a, a summary of information and allowing access into the VAERS database, which is a, a passive reporting system. So it, it relies on doctors across the world seeing that there's an, an adverse reaction, making the connection and, and reporting. Um, it, it captures, um, it's typically believed maybe 1%, but certainly a small portion of the, of the full uh, number of, of adverse reactions. But it's a very good system and it gives early warning. Early warning I, with problems with drugs has been achieved with very much smaller numbers of deaths than this. This has shown 329 deaths, 722 hospitalizations, 2,073 requirements for urgent care, um, 102 cases of Bell's palsy, 126 of anaphylaxis. Um, 
these are worrying figures. We should be having people like Chris Whitty, like um, Matt Hancock, commenting on this. This is information people need to know. People need to make an informed consent about whether they're going to receive the vaccine or not. Simply concealing information from them, simply not talking about it, is not good enough. Um, well, some countries are talking about it. This is uh, Pakistan uh, press, and the headline is Pakistan minister says, get vaccinated at own risk as COVID-19 vaccine causes deaths in some countries. Yes, this shows you that some, it's occasional. The people in authority in one or two countries across the world are looking at this, they're looking at the data coming out of the Western countries, and they are alerting their people to the risk. Uh, so this is Health Minister from the Punjab, Yasmin Rashid, um, and, and she, she said that, uh, that uh, people should get vaccinated at their own risk, and she claimed that the vaccine had caused death, deaths in some countries. She, she is quite right in this. It absolutely has. It's recorded in the VAR, VARS database, uh, amongst other places. Now, why is that not being reported in the, in the UK press? Why is that not... Why is the UK media not asking our ministers whether they should be saying similar things? Um, is, it, is it a pomposity? Is it, well, it's only Pakistan? Does, does, this, does this woman care less about her people than our politicians? I don't think so. Um, are, the, are the medical authorities in Pakistan less able than the medical authorities here? I don't see any evidence for that. Um, so why is this not news? Very puzzling. Um, and uh, here we've got a headline from The Defender saying Pfizer COVID vaccine trial shows a long, uh, alarming evidence of pathogenic priming in older adults. What is pathogenic, pathogenic priming? Well, this is where the, the vaccine is administered and there's a, there's a very good immune response. There's lots of T cells, there's lots of antibodies. There's, there's an excellent immune response. So the vaccine has been successful, it appears. But then when the, the body is then challenged with the natural virus, then there's an, there's an excessive immune response that causes huge problems um, a, with, 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 with lungs, with breathing, um, and it, it can be fatal. Uh, so that it's, it's enhancing not the immune system, it's more like disease enhancement. It makes people much more vulnerable to the natural wild disease than they would be uh, in, in, if they'd never been vaccinated at all. Uh, many thanks to Vernon Coleman, the old man in the chair, for, for, for highlighting in one of his videos this very issue. Uh, this, is, this is an article written uh, by uh, James uh, Lyons-Wheeler, PhD, and uh, Robert F. Kennedy, Jr. Um, an excellent article and well worth a look, and well worth asking questions of our political overlords as to whether this has been properly investigated. Because remember, everything's been rushed forward. We've, we've missed steps in the normal processes of, of safety assessment. Is this okay? We need to be aware of this as an issue and watching very carefully for it. Uh, yes, indeed. Okay, well, uh, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. And there are options to help us out there that would be very much appreciated. Uh, and also do please share anything that we push out on the usual channels. Um, and uh, well, David, uh, we've got two articles to show here. First of all, uh, you find an article that Robert Green had written about Leslie Evans. Now, we're going to be talking about the SNP situation a little bit more uh, towards the end of the programme. But uh, interesting that you came across this from your archives. Yes, I was looking through an old email account and I found this, uh, this article that Robert had, Robert had written just before he was taken ill and, and um, I, I'd, I'd forgotten we even had it. And it's phenomenal. It's very, very relevant to today. It shows he had a very uh, good assessment of the nature of the people involved. This, he, he was writing this in 2018 and was well ahead of his time. So it was a real pleasure to put out a joint article with Robert uh, um, and, and published post posthumously what he had said. Um, his, the, the questions he raises about Leslie Evans, about De Melis Angelini, and about corruption in uh, the Scottish system, the Scottish state, in Scottish public life, are more relevant today than ever before and are coming out into the mainstream today, whereas when Robert was, was, was calling out, 
uh, he was uh, almost a lone boy. Yes, and another, uh, well, a discussion with Brian, actually, and uh, this is under the heading Progressive Collapse. This is a discussion of what's happening in the, the SNP and more generally what's happening in our politics, what's happening to the Western democracies. Uh, I encourage people to, to, to look this out. We discuss just why uh, the SNP, riding high in the polls, apparently successful, is, is falling apart uh, with internal division and internal civil war. Uh, now, here's a question. Uh, it's a headline in the mail, but I'm quite sure they don't answer it. Uh, why are COVID cases plummeting? New infections have fallen 45% in the US and 30% globally in the past three weeks. But experts say the vaccine is not the main driver because only 8% of Americans and 13% of people worldwide have received the first dose. And if you've got any memory, you'll remember that we were told the first dose won't do very much for you. You've got to wait for your second dose. So, David, what is going on here? What indeed? Uh, there is no answer. But this is another excellent question, one we need to be asking our wise overlords. I would say that if what we're seeing is normal seasonal flu being interpreted as much more threatening, being weaponized through the media, um, and, being, and, and, and being given a narrative that it doesn't really warrant, is this not what we would see? We would see a wave of infection dying away and not very much happening, and not any correlation to any part of the lockdown policy, any part of the vaccination policy, nothing. There's a complete mismatch between the evidence and the governmental policy. In other words, we're not being driven by the science, we're being driven by dogma. Uh, that is very, very true. But uh, in Northern Ireland, uh, of course, this is having a pretty major impact. So uh, this has been tweeted out by Philip Watson. Uh, this can't be retweeted enough, he says, Northern Ireland's health minister. So the BBC asked Northern Ireland's health minister, so you're saying tonight uh, that a COVID patient won't be turned away, but the result of that decision is that a cancer patient may die. Uh, and Ms Swan saying, yeah, that's the black and white uh, as it is. That's as black and white as it is. Uh, that's quite a staggering statement for a health minister to make. Yeah, the, the, the person on the, the, the tweet is actually the, the BBC journalist. It's, it's Robin Swan, uh, who is an Ulster Unionist uh, party politician and uh, Minister for Health in Northern Ireland. And he's, he's being honest. I mean, it's a stark message. It's a horrible message. But goodness sake, at least he's telling the truth. They're turning away cancer patients. Far better to be at least honest. Then we can make a, a, we can have a discussion. We can have a, a different policy, perhaps. We're turning away cancer patients, and people will die because of the COVID nineteen policy. At least he is being frank with the people. That is true. Now, look, uh, the the excuse that's being used for people dying, even though they've been vaccinated, is that the new variants aren't uh, quite as are more are more powerful, and that uh, the vaccines aren't quite as uh, effective with them. So I just thought we'd just have a look at. Uh, the new variants. Um, here is the uh, Public Health Matters section of the UK government website. Uh, what do we know about the new co uh, COVID-19 variants? And let's just have a look at this. Well, first of all, uh, what do we know about the variant first identified in the UK? So we know that we've got a variant identified in the UK. Uh, then it goes on to say, what do we know about the variant first identified in South Africa? So we know that we've got a variant identified in South Africa. And then it goes on to say, what about the variants emerging from Brazil? So we've got variants emerging from Brazil, South Africa and the UK. OK, let's look at this then. This is a document pushed out a couple of days ago by AstraZeneca entitled COVID-19 vaccine. AstraZeneca confirms 100% protection, protection against severe disease, hospitalization and death in the primary analysis of phase three trials. So their phase three trials are running. Uh, and where are they running? Uh, the primary analysis for efficacy was based on 17,177 participants accruing 322 symptomatic cases from the phase three UK, Brazil and South Africa trials led by Oxford University and AstraZeneca. And David, uh, I know that we have said that uh, uh, causation does, or correlation does not equal causation, but here again, we have another coincidence uh, and I'm not making any statement as to say that that's what is going on, but this is another coincidence. Uh, and I would like somebody to please provide me with some evidence which demonstrates that the variants 
from the UK, South Africa and Brazil are not in any way linked to this trial. That, that's remarkable. That's a one in a million chance that you would get three, roughly, um, that you would pick three random countries and hit those three countries that you used for the trial. That, that's quite remarkable. Yeah, that, that would be, uh, that, that demands an answer too. It absolutely demands an answer. I'm going to say thank you to John for pushing that through to me because we hadn't seen that uh, and uh, that's, that was uh, very useful. Now let's uh, have a look at this. This is the Telegraph, oh sorry, this is the Telegraph today uh, and their headline is employers could insist all staff get vaccinated under health and safety law. Um, and what are they saying? They're saying that uh, basically the government is going to rely on health and safety law for requiring uh, people to be vaccinated and for the employers to get away with it. Well, let's just remember uh, what we reported last week from people management. Uh, can employers force staff to have the COVID vaccine? And their response was, in short, no. In theory, there is a thorough medical examinations. Uh, if there is a thorough medical examinations clause in a contract of employment, it could be relied upon. However, this would still be fraught with risk and freely given consent is required for any medical intervention if employers are to try to force their employees to be vaccinated not only could it give rights rise to human rights concerns but there could also be criminal implications forcing anyone uh, to receive a vaccine injection under duress under uk law would constitute an unlawful injury uh, a vaccination requires an individual's informed and voluntary consent and they also said if an employee's refusal to be vaccinated is down to a disability slash protected religious slash philosophical belief and results in disciplinary action from their employer, they may be able to issue a direct or indirect discrimination claim and claim constructive unfair dismissal if they resign in protest. So that was uh, what we reported last week. Uh, but the Telegraph uh, is as reporting that uh, the reliance is gonna be on health and safety legislation. Whitehall, Whitehall sources believe that companies who adopt a jab for a job stance are protected by current health and safety laws, which require workers to protect not only themselves, but also colleagues from harm. One government source said, if someone is working in an environment where people haven't been vaccinated, it becomes a public health risk. I would like somebody to explain to me how that is. If someone is working in an environment where people haven't been vaccinated, but they have been vaccinated, what possible risk are the unvaccinated to the vaccinated if the vaccine works? I don't know if you've got a view on that, David. <sighs> It, it takes us into areas where there's there's no soundness at all. The government in their own literature are saying it's too early to tell if having the vaccine actually reduces your risk of carrying and transmitting the disease. They know nothing. So that statement like that is, is, is bizarre. Very interesting they're using health and safety law. Maybe we can get a chance to explore that in, in extra time. Health and safety law is the area where you're not innocent until proven guilty. You're guilty until proven innocent. Mm. Uh, and uh, that, let's, uh, let's move quickly on then to uh, Devi Sridhar, the uh, wonderful uh, expert that uh, the Scottish government relies on in these matters. And there's lockdown skeptics, preliminary materials for a theory of Devi Sridhar. Do we have a theory of Devi? Oh, they do. This is, this is a fantastic little, ad, little article. Uh, written by uh, Sinead Murphy, who's a, a, a lecturer in philosophy at, I think, Newcastle University. I encourage people to look this out. An example of the alternative media now being far more readable and far more interesting than the, than the broadsheet media. Um, so Devi Sridhar, who, who decides essentially what happens in Scotland because Nicola Sturgeon won't do a thing without Debbie Sesh... Never mind. <laughs> Debbie, Debbie tweeted out... Um, that uh, after, after appearance on television, Devi tweeted out, I feel like I make myself unpopular by looking ahead six to 12 months and sketching out how things could evolve. Best to worst case. So we can work towards best case. This is public health. We try to avert future crises by anticipating and preventing them. Not much, uh, not the most fun at parties I know. So this, this bit of banality was tweeted out by, by Devi. Now, uh, lockdown skeptics here have, have decided, well, this is a very telling and interesting tweet. Let's see if we can sort out what's happening. Now, I, I've picked out a couple of comments to make. Uh, they start off, the defining characteristic um, uh, that 
that makes populations of 21st century democracy so ripe for control. So this is what they're talking about, is, is the infantilization of the population. The fact that um, we're being driven by emotion, not analysis. Uh, so the comment here, Devi's uh, tweet is a perfect example of the young girl syndrome. It's worth taking time to pick it over. The tweet begins, I feel like, right? and they note that it, it, doesn't, it doesn't say, uh, that I think that, it's I feel. So feelings have, re have replaced thought. Um, and and they, it, uh, they comment that, uh, on and on it goes, pushing of life ahead of us as a carrot. Um, sorry, the second comment to say that, I, I feel like she then goes and she looks ahead six to 12 months. And, and uh, the article comments, on and on it goes, this pushing of life ahead of us, uh, a carrot that is always about to be eating, subjected the supposedly educated populations of supposedly advanced societies to just that tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow deferral, with which we often placate the unreasonable demands of spoilt children. You can have it next week, next month, next year, anything to keep them happy. Um, and... Uh, they, they find, towards the end of the article, they comment, the tweet's worst was saved to last. The playful concession that concerns for public health is not the most fun at parties I know. When once we allow to pass on challenge the throwaway dismissal of everything, I do beg your pardon. I haven't done that for a long time. Uh, once, we, once we allow to pass on challenge this throwaway dismissal of everything that is now expected to surrender, public health as fun at parties. We lose this fight when all that has been taken from us, the friendship, the family, the festivals, the education, the care, the touch of human hands, when all of this may be summarized as fun at parties, we lose the fight. When all that has been imposed on us, the anxiety, the depression, the abuse, the penury, the hunger, the sickness, and yes, the death, is whitewashed as fun at parties, we lose the fight. We must keep thinking. We must not bow to feeling. We must we claim the present and not be put off until Easter. We must remember that some things are always and absolutely off the table. A, a, a beautiful piece of writing, a very important piece of writing. So thank you, Lockdown Skeptics, for that. to make people fearful and stressed and anxious and utterly brilliant to see new media, let's call it the new media, coming in and taking apart that language and uh, describing it for what it is. So I think this is a very important step that people are now looking at what's being said and actually taking it back to its component pieces to understand what's really going on. Hope um, I've explained that in the right language. We'll see. Yeah. Okay. Right. Let's uh, let's move on to censorship then. And this was in the I newspaper today. Freedom of Information Act. Michael goes off. Uh, cabinet office cover up claims show transparency more important than ever. Now, what's this about? Well, uh, they're calling it the art of darkness. We'll come on to that in a second. Uh, they're saying a secretive unit of officials working inside Michael Gove's cabinet office stands accused of sinister, sinister cover-up tactics that are undermining transparent government in the midst of a pandemic known as the Clearinghouse. Well, let's just have a look at where this originally came from. It came from, uh, the open, from open Democracy. They published a report called Art of Darkness, How the Government is Undermining Freedom of Information. It's by Lucas Ammon. Do go and find this. It's a very interesting report. And let's just get a couple of quotes out of this. The Cabinet Office's influence on freedom of information does not stop at the Information Commissioner's Office. So they've gone through uh, how the Cabinet Office is inf influencing the Information Commissioner's Office. Uh, the Cabinet Office, they say, is also in charge of the Clearinghouse, a small unit that monitors inbound sensitive requests across Whitehall and coordinates the responses of multiple departments. Uh, it goes on to say this report reveals, that's the Art of Darkness report, reveals the inner workings of the Clearinghouse for the first time. Freedom of information and subject access requests by Open Democracy reveal that the Clearinghouse shares with a range of Whitehall departments a daily update containing the names of journalists and campaigners, the requests they've submitted and advice on how referring departments should respond. So uh, the cabinet office therefore taking absolute control of the narrative, making sure that right across government, uh, freedom of information 
uh, uh, replies are responded to in the correct way. I just thought we would have a look at the government's censorship network uh, and how that stands, therefore, at the moment. Uh, we have the National Security Council and the Cabinet Office, and on the National Security Council side, we've obviously got GCHQ, Security Services, uh, Secret Intelligence Service, and the Joint Biosecurity Centre. And on the right-hand side, under the Cabinet Office, we have the Rapid Response Unit. Its role is looking at uh, Twitter and Facebook and uh, analysing that and identifying people and also responding uh, to tweets and so on. So that's all about analytics. Uh, the National Security Communications Team, 77th Brigade and the 13 Signals sort of do the same sort of thing. Uh, the Cabinet Office and ultimate control of those. And also the Department of Culture, Media and S Digital Culture, Media and Sport, uh, Fake News Unit doing the same. We can now add the, clear the FOI Clearinghouse onto that. This is part of, of this thing. Um, so the question is, who is in charge of this, this little network? Well, let's just have a look. Uh, because uh, the man in charge of the cabinet office is uh, Simon Case. He is the main uh, government or the, the main civil service uh, Mandarin in charge of this. Uh, and on his shoulder is Michael Gove, uh, peeking out from the background there, Brian. But this is a nice little uh, network that they have built for themselves in order to control narratives. Uh, they're not doing a very good job as far as I can see. But nonetheless, thousands of people employed in this, tens of thousands of people employed in this, uh, and uh, we see the, the results of it in comment sections, we see the results of it on Twitter, and we see the results of it and people being uh, deplatformed uh, for yes. speaking out. But the bit that stands out for me, Mike, is that you have got the British military now integrated with central government via the cabinet office not spying on foreign and potentially hostile nation states overseas but spying on the british public so what we're looking at is the mechanics of a dictatorship this is this is a coup has taken place because this is clearly not a democracy and not not the democratic country that we used to live in yeah, absolutely so uh, david uh, let's just uh, briefly Move on to this. Last week, you showed a little bit of video of uh, a lady uh, in her shop. She had kept her shop open and she was uh, engaging with the police uh, in Edinburgh. Uh, it was uh, quite a spectacular little clip, but we now know the name of the shop. Yes, it's Nene Scott's uh, shop in the Royal Mile in the Cannon Gate in Edinburgh. Uh, it's, a, it's a gift shop and uh, this is the report in Edinburgh Live, uh, who, who report that police confirmed that a 37-year-old man was arrested and charged, and a 29-year-old man was issued with a fixed penalty notice at the premises. So that was the members of the public who were supporting uh, Nene Scott in her um, position with the police. Uh, they were, they were um, acted on by the police. Now, the, the, the fine people of Edinburgh, well, they're voting on this matter because they've seen the video. Um, and... Um, Edinburgh and further afield in, in, in Scotland here, uh, the public response has been to thank this lady for the stand she's taken and to send her money to help keep her shop open and keep uh, body and soul together. So uh, a lot of the UK column viewers were asking how they could support uh, the, 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 the shopkeeper. Well, here's the needy uh, Scott's shop. Uh, that telephone number, if you phone that, uh, she'll be able to take orders over the phone. Uh, the people at um, uh, Scottish uh, uh, Freedom Forum um, have um, volunteered, or two of them have volunteered to help um, help this uh, shopkeeper set up an e-commerce site. When we get details of that, we'll pass that on to make it easier to buy things uh, from her. Um, and uh, but in the meantime, uh, by post and by by telephone. Uh, you should be able to uh, support uh, uh, Nini's um, shop and uh, her stance against tyranny. Um, the tyranny, incidentally, said to her that uh, they were going to report her to the licensing board. Uh, her shop sells liquor. Uh, they were going to report her to the licensing board because she had been hostile and abusive. Um, I would say to Police Scotland that that was not hostile and abusive. Uh, you misidentified it because you're so unfamiliar with it. Uh, what uh, what uh, this lady was being was magnificent. 
and uh, if only Police Scotland knew how to be magnificent, we would have a better world. Um, the uh, last uh, clip there shows some of the, the, the comments on um, TripAdvisor uh, left by people who've been in the shop, um, talking about how warm and friendly the lady is. I spoke to her today myself, uh, and I can confirm that she is uh, a, a wonderful lady, and uh, I hope to be uh, in her shop very soon, and if I am, we'll try and get some video. Okay. That's a good one. Excellent. Yes. Well done, her. Um, right, are we going to, David, uh, we've got a lot to do this afternoon. Are we going to go through the next two items or one item very quickly? And uh... let's, let's, let's go through just before we leave. Um, this is um, a few Scottish items that are uh, timely, so it's, it's worth getting them out on the main news. Uh, this is the Sun reporting it was a fit-up. Ex-Rangers administ administrator hands over a dossier claiming he was fitted up by Police Scotland and the Crown Office and the evidence was tampered with. He also says that, that uh, witnesses were threatened. Now, I would point out that he's calling for the, the perpetrators of this abuse uh, to be investigated, and if the evidence is there, tried for crimes. Now, in Scotland, we have only one uh, police force, it is claimed by Police Scotland, that have investigatory powers, and that's Police Scotland. And of course, they are guilty in this themselves. And we have only one prosecutor with prosecutorial powers, and that's the Crown Office, and they are most certainly guilty because they've essentially admitted it, that they had a malicious prosecution of, this, uh, of these two men. So how are we going to investigate and how are we going to prosecute when the very people charged with investigating and prosecuting are themselves the ones who are going to be on trial? Uh, good question. And what's, uh, just quickly, what is the final, or the latest on the, the Joanna Cherry Scottish National Party situation. A few points here. Here's Joanna Cherry tweeting out, um, she's retweeting uh, Alex Salmon's tweet of uh, the Scotland rugby team lifting the Calcutta Cup at Twickenham for the first time in 38 years. Um, the fact that she has liked a tweet from Alex Salmon is, uh, I think, a hanging offence now in the SNP, so that's a declaration of war. Uh, this is a quote from the SNP MPs internal WhatsApp group at Westminster, uh, Joanna Cherry said, the man who sent me a violent rape threat tonight is an associate of men in this group. That is, associate of male MPs, SNP MPs. So I will be leaving it. Thanks to all of you who have been in touch. So that shows you how bitter that fight is becoming. Um, she also said, uh, with a, I would say, a hint of accuracy, uh, she accused the SNP of Stalinist revisionism uh, as her sacking didn't actually mention her or her achievements or even her presence or even her name, which was quite something. Uh, and the uh, problems in the SNP go from bad to worse. We've had uh, Neil Hanvey was appointed last week to the front bench. And after four days, Neil Hanvey was sacked from the front bench uh, because he had supported um, a crowdfunder uh, to raise money to um, carry out, to take forward a defamation claim against another SNP MP when we talked about uh, Brian the other day, uh, Kirsty Blackman, uh, the SNP MP for Aberdeen. So the war goes on. There'll be more on that story later. Okay, uh, and uh, well, we're going to end uh, then with uh, with this the Scottish variant. Since we're talking about variants, uh, I think that's quite apt, David. <laughs> I like that. The Scottish variant of COVID is tartan and has many drones pointing at many different angles. And it's based on the bagpipe. And uh, there you go. Watch out for that one. Uh, I'm sure it might be quite nasty. At least you can hear that one coming. If there's to be any sense of infection, you might actually hear it. So that's a good thing. Uh, yes. Uh, now, to answer the question in the chat box, we will be doing an extra. We'll be back on the live stream about 10 minutes uh, after the end of the programme. Yeah, indeed. Um, David, how can we sum up very uh, quickly? We've got a nation still in a state of curfew. We've got a nation uh, which is running a surveillance system against its own citizens. Uh, we've got north of the border total breakdown in government and uh, no law and order because there's no separation of the powers. Mm. It seems to me that these United Kingdoms are being attacked from the inside. Is that too strong? 
we are not finding any way of getting questions answered. We're not finding any rationality. It's all the emotion that Devi Sridhar bases her decision making on. It's all of the uh, illogicality. It's all of the short termism. Um, and there is no mature reflection. There's no soundness in the system now. We need to start getting some soundness back. It starts with the ability to talk, which leads on to the ability to think. OK, and I can't resist this, David, because of a comment in the chat box. Your task is to get on to the lady in that excellent shop up in Edinburgh to give her the diagram of the Scottish variant, uh, suggest that she produces it as a key fob, keychain and fob, and I think they will sell like hotcakes. Yes, we'll see. We'll see if that can be arranged. Thank you. OK, thank everybody for joining us and especially to our overseas uh, viewers. We know you're there and thank you for coming all the way uh, to watch and listen to the UK column news today. That's it for the moment. We'll be back shortly uh, with our extra. Thanks for joining us. Bye bye. bye, -bye.